I was going to begin with a, a joke, but uh, I don't know if I could keep up with Brian, so <laughs> we'll just get right into the message. I, uh, I was reminded last week after uh, the service was over that, uh, I guess two things, one, that there's comfort in company, uh, but even more, that there's something powerful about sharing our stories, uh, and uh, I had people afterwards tell me that my willingness to share one of my most regrettable decisions in my life uh, caused them to remember regrettable decisions that they've made in the past and, and were actually willing to share that with me. And, and I also talked to some people who are living through uh, regrettable decisions that they've made. And uh, if you don't have a clue what I'm talking about because you weren't here last week, you're going to have to uh, listen to the message online to, uh, to hear what my confession was actually about. But specifically, I was talking about re- regrettable decisions that many of us have made in our life where we've chosen sin, self, and the ways of the world over pursuing holiness and living life the way that God would call us to live. Uh, and it, what I imagined proved true that many of you could relate to regrettable decisions, that, that there are some of you uh, could think of regrettable decisions in your past. And as I said, there are some, and you're living through the aftermath uh, of some of the regrettable decisions that you've made uh, just recently. Uh, and uh, we all understand that it's not a real nice, pretty place to be when you're living through the consequences of regrettable decisions that you've made. Uh, it, broken relationships, a disconnect with God. Uh, People don't trust us. People see us as deceitful. It it, it ruins our testimony. Uh, It shatters uh, the relationships that we have with certain people. And uh, so we talked about those regrettable decisions and the decisions that we've made and the regret that we feel. And we hate being in that place. And yet, despite the fact that we don't like being in that place, we don't like the results And despite the fact that, like I did, I made a resolve that I wouldn't have any more regrettable decisions. And yet we look at our life and we see that time and time again, we find ourselves in that place where we're living through the consequences of having made regrettable uh, decisions. And so the question that we ask is, how can we get past uh, that pattern of sin that keeps constantly tripping us up and having us find ourselves in that place of regrettable decisions, how can we put that in the past and start living the life consistently that God wants us to? How can we experience victory in the battle against sin and self? And I said last week that those two questions are questions if anyone should have been asking themselves uh, was the Corinthians that Paul was writing to. They were a church that was in disarray. Uh, They were fighting with each other. Uh, They had problems. There was trouble. We could list all of the issues that Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians. They were fighting with each other. There was sin. There was immorality. They were abusing their spiritual gifts. They were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. They were uh, filing lawsuits against each other. They were questioning some pretty key doctrines. And so if there was anyone that Paul wrote to that we would label as probably being the most sinful, most troubled, having the most problems, having failed the most, it's got to be the Corinthians. And as you would imagine, they've probably received the most rebuke 
out of anyone that Paul wrote to. And in 1 Corinthians, as I said last week, the first 14 chapters, Paul addresses their misguided and errant behavior. And in the 15th chapter, he, he addresses their misguided theology. And then we come to verse, or sorry, chapter 16. And, and in chapter 16, most scholars consider it kind of like a PS to a letter, just tying up some loose odds and ends. But in the middle of chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, we find two verses that really stand out. Because Paul, for one last time in his first letter, decides that he's going to address this place, this nasty, messy place that the Corinthians find themselves in. And he's going to give a positive summary against a backdrop of all the negative that he's been talking about. And he's going to explain to the Corinthians how they can put the past behind them. How they can turn the tables and they can move forward in victory. And how they can thrive as a community. And so if you were to read 1 Corinthians, you'd see that for the first 15 chapters, Paul says, don't do this. Don't do that. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that. But then you get to these two verses in verse, uh, chapter 16, and he says, but do this, and do this, and do this. And you know what? If you do this, you won't have the problems that I had to talk, talk to you about in the first 15 chapters. In fact, if you were doing these five things that he outlines in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 16, he wouldn't have to write the first 15 chapters, but he did. And it's in those two verses that we find five powerful principles for victorious living. And last week we began a new series, and it's a series that we're going to carry on through the summer. And as you see in the bulletin, it's called Pop Verses, Pop for Popular. And uh, what they are is verses that are the most commonly searched up verses from one of the Bible study tool uh, websites that you can uh, access online. And this was one of the verses. And it was kind of an obscure verse to me. I've never really done anything with it before. And yet in this verse, we find these five principles. And so if you're struggling right now with the place that you're in because of regrettable decisions, here's Paul's answer for you. And if you've been in a place as a result of regrettable decisions that you've made, where you've chosen sin, you've chosen self, you've chosen the way of the world. These are principles that you will want to put into place in your life. So turn in your Bible, and we'll go back to the passage that we were um, looking at last week. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 verses 13 and 14. And Paul writes this, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. As I suggested last week, you need to hear this read in a militant tone. These are marching orders for an army going into battle because Paul wants the Corinthians and he wants those of us today to, to realize that we are involved in a battle. And the kind of battle that Paul's talking about is a spiritual battle. It, it, it's, a, it's a war between good and evil, between God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. And there's a lot of times where we may feel that Satan is enjoying the upper hand. And uh, that the tactics and strategies of Satan are numerous uh, and they're dirty. 
And he uses all, different, all sorts of different strategies and tactics to trip us up, to, to, to deceive us, uh, to replace what is true love with hatred and, and immorality, and, and to blind people to the truth concerning Jesus uh, and the gospel. And that's why life as a Christian, this journey that we're on isn't always easy. Because we constantly are finding ourselves in this battle. And whether we lose or win the battle will be directly linked to how well we're obeying these five imperatives, these five principles that Paul shares with us. And so last week, we, we just looked at the first principle, and that is the principle, be on your guard. Or simply, watch. Be alert. Be aware. And we saw last week that what Paul's talking about is being spiritually awake. Knowing what's going on around you, as opposed to being spiritually asleep. Being easily deceived. Being careless. Uh, being indifferent. That's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. If you want to get out of the mess that you're in, if you want to move forward in victory, if you want to see your community thrive and your, your personal life thrive, then be on guard. Watch. Be spiritually alert. And really, as a Christian, we are called to a life of alertness. 22 times in the New Testament, we find that word watch. And, and most often, it's related uh, and directed at, at us as Christians. And so last week, we, we, we quickly went through some of the things that we need to be watching for. We need to watch for Satan. We need to watch for temptation. We need to watch for apathy and indifference. We need to watch for false teaching. We need to watch for the Lord's return. We, we need to be living a life that shows others that we truly believe that Jesus could come at any time and we want to be found by Jesus when he comes in a way that's pleasing him, in a way that, that we're living for him. And so we ended last week with, well, how do we watch? How do we go about being spiritually alert and, and awake? And I suggested two very common answers. One is we watch through prayer. That we pray to God that he would make us spiritually aware. And as we make prayer a part of our regular discipline, we have this heightened spiritual awareness that helps us to watch. And then the second answer is to watch through the window of the word. And it's in God's word that we find the resources that we need to be alert to watch, to be spiritually awake. So that's where we ended off last week. And so we move into Paul's second principle. And we're going to camp on this one for most of the morning. I'm just going to quickly address the last three because I really feel this second one's really important as we're going to see it's, it's related quite directly to the first principle as well. And Paul says, be on your guard. And then he says, stand firm in the faith. Stand firm. Literally means to stand for what you believe in. To be grounded in your convictions. You know, that's, that's a characteristic of a person. It used to be quite admirable. That's what you looked for in a person. Someone who stood for what they believed. That had strong convictions. But nowadays, especially in spiritual circles, 
it's kind of lost its appeal. It's not politically correct to hold really strong convictions. It seems much more admirable to be tolerant to, to the point that you soften your convictions. And I don't know if you're following any of the U.S. politics, but boy, was that ever made clear this week when Bernie Sanders was interviewing one of the candidates that Donald Trump had suggested. I can't even remember the, the title. Uh, but this, this gentleman is from Wheaton College, a Christian college, and who in the past has written papers uh, concerning the centrality of Jesus, that Jesus is the only way to have a right relationship with God. And Bernie Sanders grilled this guy. Did you actually say that? Do you really believe that? And this gentleman very uh, politely answered Bernie Sanders' questions and explained that he's a Christian, he believes in the centrality of Jesus Christ, and that Jesus is the only way to God. And Bernie Sanders' last comments on that issue, and it was then followed up by other senators who grilled this guy, was this. I don't think your strong convictions, and I'm paraphrasing it, I don't think your strong convictions represent the kind of person that America is looking for in a role such as this. But here's the problem. If we don't stand for what we believe in, if we don't have strong convictions, then we will easily be uprooted by the winds of change, the latest fads, temptation, and trials. So Paul says, stand firm in the faith. And notice Paul doesn't say stand firm in your faith. And of course, standing firm in our faith in Jesus Christ is very important. But that's not what Paul's getting at here. Paul says, stand firm in the faith. And that phrase, in the faith, the faith, we find it in numerous spots in the New Testament. And it refers to the whole of God's revelation to us. The gospel. The word of God. And so what Paul is saying is stand firm. Stand up for what you believe. Stand firm in your convictions concerning the doctrines of the Christian faith. Let me ask you a question. What are your core convictions regarding your faith? What are those things that are non-negotiable about what you believe to be true about God's word? What are those things that you will hold on to regardless of what the world throws at you? Stand firm in the faith. And as I said, the first principle and the second principle are directly connected. You really can't have one without the other. You can't be spiritually alert unless you're grounded in your convictions and the Christian faith. And it's very difficult to be grounded in, in your convictions concerning the Christian faith if you're not spiritually alert, if you're not watching 
uh, if you're not on guard. And unfortunately, there's, there's, there's way too many followers of Jesus who profess to be followers of Jesus who are being lured away by false doctrine, who are falling into sin, falling into temptation, who, who are being blindsided by trials because they're not being spiritually alert. They're not on their watch. And they're not standing firm in the faith. They haven't, they haven't deeply rooted themselves. They haven't well grounded themselves uh, in the truths of the Christian faith. You see, Satan can't snatch away our saving faith in Jesus. But he can render a follower of, a, a follower of Jesus ineffective by causing doubt and confusion about the content of what we believe to be true or the, or the lack of content of what we believe to be true. And if we're not well grounded, if we're not standing firm in the faith, we can easily be led astray by those who have no interest in any convictions regarding the Christian faith. If we're not well grounded, we can easily be led astray by those who profess to be followers of Jesus but aren't really comfortable with having strong convictions. And young people, I know, phase me back in here. It's now, believe me, it's now that you start grounding yourself in the truth of God's word. Because you're going to be surrounded by people at school and you're going to be surrounded by people, maybe even in your youth group, who aren't going to be comfortable with living a life that's based and rooted in, in strong convictions concerning the truth of God's word. And it's a dangerous place. And if we're not grounded in, in, in the faith, we're going to find ourselves being more interested and more concerned about looking good and being politically correct and being tolerant with, with the ways and the wisdom of the world so that we don't look foolish. But here's the flip side. Followers of Jesus, especially ones who profess and make it publicly known that they're followers of Jesus, who refuse to stand firm in the faith, who refuse to deeply ground themselves and root themselves in the truths concerning the Christian faith, are a detriment to the body. Because we cause doubt and confusion to the people outside the walls of the church. So when I sin, I'm not just sinning against God. Ultimately, it's against God. I'm not just sinning against the person or persons that are involved. Of course, that's true. I'm not just ruining my own testimony. When I sin, when I give in to temptation, when I allow false doctrine to permeate the things that I say and the things that I do, it affects everyone within the community. It hurts the witness of everyone in the community. It affects the fellowship of everyone in the community. And so Paul says to the Corinthians, and he says to us, stand firm in the faith. Ground yourself 
in your convictions regarding the truth of God's word. And how do we do that? How do we stand firm? How do we ground ourselves? The answer is pretty simple. Get into the book. Get into God's word. I say this to Allison. I've been saying this for as long as she's known me and I've been preaching. I will say this so many times, more than anything, observation from preparing a message and studying the word. And it's this. The most common answer to the questions I pose when I'm preaching or when I'm studying a passage. The most common answer to how can we make the promises and the principles of Scripture effective and effectual. And the answer over and over and over and over again, get into the Word. Study the Word. Read the Word. Meditate on the Word. Memorize the Word. Because when we get to know what's in this book, it gives us a foundation on which we can stand so that we aren't moved so easily. That we aren't led astray by false teaching. So that we can recognize the the tactics and the, the strategy of the enemy. So we can resist temptation. And 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 we can live through the greatest of trials in the darkest of nights. Psalm chapter 1 speaks of this. It says, Blessed are those who don't walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but who delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on his law day and night. They're like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Get into the book. And then secondly, have a confident faith in the truths that you find when you get into the book. Don't believe the lie that it is arrogant and intolerant to hold strong convictions concerning the Christian faith. Paul says that coming to strong, biblically informed, mature convictions based on Scripture is our duty. And when we put this confident faith in the truths of Scripture. And we live each day through that confidence that we have in the truths of Scripture. Then we won't be uprooted by false teaching or temptations or trials or attack. And throughout Scripture, we we see examples of that. Job, we know what Job went through. And what does Job say at the very end? Almost one of the last things he says Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Psalm 13, David finds himself in that place where he he thinks God has, has turned his back on him. He's crying out to God to look upon him, to answer his questions. He has no idea what's going on. But even in the midst of that very dark place, David could think back to what he knew was true to be, uh, to be true about God. And he says, 
How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord, my God, give light to my eyes or I'll sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. What's David say next? He takes a deep breath and goes, okay, what do I know to be true about God? And David says, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise. Why? Because he has been good to me. And I know that it's true. And that's my conviction. And so I can stand and, and not be moved by even the greatest of trial. Because this I know to be true about God. And you might say, okay, that's great, Brent. Those are just old biblical characters and it's 2,000 years ago or more that those passages were written. But we have testimonies of people even today who are living through this themselves. I picked up this book a few years ago. It was cheap. That's why I, I picked it up. And I've read it and it's a fantastic book. And the, the, the first couple of chapters have been life-changing for me. It's written by a guy named Britt Merrick. Britt and Kate Merrick. And uh, Britt and Kate got some devastating news a number of years ago. Uh, their daughter Daisy was at school and she fell over uh, and they, she was rushed to hospital. Uh, Britt and his wife were enjoying his day off. He's a pastor. And uh, they discovered after some uh, testing of their daughter uh, that the worst uh, is uh, actually true. And I just want to read a couple of excerpts from his book. He says, what do you do as a Christian when the doctor tells you that your five-year-old daughter has cancer? How do you deal with that? If you're a Christian, your mind goes to Jesus. That's just where you go. As soon as I heard your daughter's fallen and she's not doing well, my mind went to Jesus. As soon as I got to the emergency room and they said, we think it's this, we think it's that, my mind went to Jesus. When the doctor stood before me and said, it's the biggest tumor we've ever seen of this sort, and we think it's stage three cancer, my mind went to Jesus. Why is it that Jesus is the first thought that comes to mind? Why do we run to him? What informs our thought processes in these times of life? My experience with Daisy has sharpened my understanding that what shapes the way we handle crises is the book we as Christians base our lives upon, the Bible. Our minds took a certain route to Jesus when we first heard the news. We went through the word of God. Immediately our hearts and our minds were filled with truth we had learned from the Bible and an understanding of the character of God. Immediately our hearts and minds were filled with the story of God and how he has proven himself faithful with his people over and over again. Since the beginning of time, immediately our hearts and minds were filled with the Bible's stories of people just like you and me who faced problems and placed their little bit of faith in a big God the word was immediately a comfort, a lamp, a light, and an instructor. Because we had read our Bibles, we could fall back on his truth, his promises, and what he, we knew about his character. And that's what protected us from the schemes of Satan. And he goes on to just talk about every little trial, every challenge, everything that was thrown at them that would, that would have thrown most people right off and how they went to God's word and how do, they went to God's word. And they were able to pull, even at the darkest time, to the faith that they had in the person and, and the work and the character of God. And that was their comfort. And at the end of, the, uh, of this little part of the book, uh, Daisy uh, was in the midst of, of treatment. Britt has no idea what's going to take place with his daughter. And he writes this, what I do know 
what I'm absolutely certain of is that my God is big and he is worthy of my faith. My God is a big God who held my daughter in her hardest moment and holds her now. He also clasps my family and me in the palm of his hand. Nothing's too hard for him. This trial with my daughter's health has already shown me how God grasps and sustains me in ways that I never thought possible. Daisy died. A number of years later, three bouts of cancer. Uh, I can't remember, it was 10 or 12 years old that uh, uh, she passed away. Uh, this is what Britt's wife wrote very shortly after Daisy's death. Early Saturday morning, we had the privilege of witnessing Daisy's departure from earth to a place outside of time and space where her joy is complete, heaven. Our darling girl gave us kisses at midnight with lips dry from thirst and hot with fever. Tiny and sweet, the words, that's awesome, came from her tired body after letting us know she was having good dreams. She's safely home, finally well. Thank you for your partnership in loving our girl. Please know we are brokenhearted for ourselves, but so happy for Daisy, who is with Jesus in paradise, able to run and eat and play and abandon. We believe that wholeheartedly. And as they say in Narnia, she's going further up and further in. She left the Shadowlands for a place more real in every sense. Feel free to laugh and cry and hug. There's no single way to grieve. And while we miss her on earth, we will pick up where we left off when I have the privilege of going to where she is in the presence of God, where there is fullness of joy. I know the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and I rejoice. My body rests in safety. For you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. A number of years later, Kate has written a book and it just came out this year. And I would really encourage you, if you want to read a book of faith, and it's not fake, it's not put on. They'll be the first ones to tell you that going through this struggle was not easy, that there was times of real loneliness and darkness. But to see the faith that they have specifically because they rooted themselves in God's word and came to convictions about what they knew to be true about God's character and who he is and the way he acts, that they could come to a place of peace and of great hope and of a stronger faith. Stand firm in the faith. Let me just quickly cover the last three principles, and literally it will be quickly. Let me find the passage. So Paul says, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith. And then he says, be courageous. And if you remember last week, if you were here, I said, I was trying to guess why this was such a popular verse, why so many people have looked it up in the past year. And this is, this is the part I think is the reason why. Be courageous. In the Greek, literally, it's be men constantly. If I paraphrase it, a real popular men's ministry phrase, man up. That's what Paul says. Man up. Be men constantly. And so what some people have, have it's, it's difficult to interpret. And so what some people have landed on is that what Paul is pointing out to is, is some of the characteristics that we would uh, 
I don't know if it's politically correct to say, that we would see as being masculine, being brave, being courageous. And so what Paul is saying is be brave, be courageous as you move forward, as you, as you uh, long for victory in these spiritual battles. Be brave and be courageous. And obviously, we do need to be brave. We need to be courageous as we face all of these things. But what many scholars land on is what, what Paul is saying is something even greater than that. What Paul is saying is, don't be boys. Grow up and be men. And likewise, don't be little girls. Grow up and be big women. Because the Corinthians were immature. When it came to doctrine, they were infants. They couldn't even give them real food. It was just milk. (coughs) They were immature with the way they treated each other. They were immature uh, in their actions with each other. That's so what Paul says is grow up. Be mature. And what's the key to spiritual maturity? It's a real easy answer. Get into the word. So you notice those first three principles. How can we be watchful? Get into the word. How can we stand firm in the faith? Get into the word. How can we be spiritually mature? Get into the word. And then Paul says, be courageous. And then he says, be strong. Be strong. Literally, it's be strengthened. And it's a real peculiar word here. It's referring to inner strength. And it's the only command that's passive. Be strengthened. It's not a strength that comes from within. It's not a strength that's from us in and of ourselves. It's a strength that we need to be strengthened with that comes from an outside source. And what's that source? Paul says in Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord. And how do we be strong in the Lord? In Ephesians 3, he prays for the Ephesians. He says, I pray that by the Spirit you will be strengthened in the inner man. And so we're strengthened as we yield our life to the Spirit. And the Spirit's strength becomes our strength. Another thing that's interesting about that word, be strengthened, is it's not a word that's just talking about a possession. It's talking about something that's continually in action. Be strengthened. Be constantly yielding your life to the power of the Spirit. In what? As you face all these spiritual battles. When you're confronted with false teaching and temptations and trials, be strong. Not in and of yourself. Rely on the strength that you get from the Spirit as you yielded your life to Him and you depend on Him. And when we do that, there's really there's no excuse for losing. You might say, yes, but I'm facing trials and temptations that there's not a chance I could ever possibly handle. And I would say, well, that's... God's got you right where he wants you. Paul in 2 Corinthians says that it's in my weakness that what? God's strength is made perfect. It says, we realize I can't handle this on my own. God, this is yours. I'm yours and this is yours. You work through me. Help me to rely on your strength. And so Paul says, be strengthened in the Lord. And then finally, a really peculiar command. Do all things in love. These are marching orders for an army going to battle. What in the world is Paul telling them 
to be loving for? I guess it's the Corinthians, so it would make sense. Uh, They had love all mixed up. They were fighting each other. They were suing each other. They were hogging food from each other. They were being immoral with each other. So yeah, it makes sense. And all that you do, do it in love. But what about us? How does that relate to us? And what is he talking about love? Be considerate of one another? Yeah. To look out for other people's needs? Yeah. But even more. To put others' needs before our needs. To be giving and sacrificing, sacrificing for the sake of others. You see, love balances everything else off. If all we did was put those first four principles into action, we might end up being kind of militant and crusty. And Paul says, I want you to be watchable. I want you to stand firm. I want you to be mature. Grow up. I want you to be strong. But in all of that, the attitude that you're to have is the attitude of love. Because without love, watchfulness might deteriorate into a judgmental spirit. Without love, firmness might become hardness. Without love, spiritual maturity might lack gentleness and and care. Uh, Without without love, our self-righteousness, or sorry, our our righteous living might become smug self-righteousness. So Paul says, in all that you do, every interaction, the attitude that needs to underlie it all is the attitude of love. At home, have the attitude of love. At work, have the attitude of love. When you're facing temptations and trials, have the attitude of love. When you're facing those who would oppose you, have the attitude that Jesus had, the attitude of love. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Be mature. Be strong. And in everything you do, and at all times, may your attitude be an attitude of love. Praise team, come on up. There's one thing that I would have added if I was writing this, and they didn't ask me to write it, so it didn't get added. But if I was going to add one more principle to this, these two verses, it would be this. Go through life knowing and living through the hope and the confidence that the ultimate victory has been won. Paul tells him that just earlier from chapter 16. Thank God for the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. Jesus has defeated Satan. He has defeated the power and the penalty for sin. And there's coming a day when there will no longer even be the presence of sin. That's the victory that is already ours as we move into each day facing the spiritual battles that confront us putting these principles into place so that we can experience victory. The ultimate victory has already been won. And that's because of Jesus.